Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly, this fellow is with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Well, for the next six weeks, we will uh, be resuming our pilgrimage through the Gospel of Luke towards the Ascension. We've spent the last six weeks on a little bit of a detour to celebrate Advent, and now we return to the journey that we started a little over a year ago through the book of Luke. Because I believe that we need a refreshing and a fresh look at who Jesus really is as told through the pages of Scripture. A lot of people have a lot of ideas about God, about religion, about the Jesus that they love. But it's good for us to get back into the Scripture itself and allow the Word of God to describe the second person of the Trinity. This week and next week, we are actually ushered by Luke into three courtrooms. Today, we see the court of peers, the court of public opinion. And we will also see the court of perception, 
though it was a puppet court, a puppet rule. They thought they had authority, but they had none themselves. Then we also find the court of politics. That will be next week, where human authority that exists, it may or may not represent God's justice, but God has established government, and so we will see the court of politics in Luke 23 next week, Lord willing. In both of the courts that we look at today, though, we see tragic outcomes. Peter finds tragedy because he is isolated. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God has said it is not good for man to be alone. Because when we are isolated, we make bad decisions. We become better when we lean on the strength of others and when we allow their correction to our blind spots. As this is the first Sunday of the new year, Allow me to offer you some bonus advice, some free advice. We're not going to pass the offering plates a second time to cover this advice. The free, the free advice is make it a priority to worship with others, to learn from others, and to serve with others in the remaining 364 days. See, the tragic outcome that we're going to see at Caiaphas's palace is due to people who overvalued their importance. Peter overvalued his isolation, and we will see that the Sanhedrin overvalued their importance. The Sanhedrin presumed authority, authority to make decisions that were contrary to fact. And they made these decisions because it did not fit their expected narrative. These priests, scribes, and elders got out of their lane because they made a determination apart from truth. Which leads me to the second piece of free advice that I offer you for 22. And that second bit of advice is make it a priority to learn the truth. Fill your heart and your head with the Word of God. There are a lot of different reading plans, a lot of different suggestions. I know we have a group that meets on Monday afternoon, and they're reading through the Scriptures together. We make available free of charge the Our Daily Bread devotional, which not only has a little story and a prayer, but it also has a scripture text assigned to each day. And that may be a tool that you can use to get regular to fill your head and your heart with the truth so that you are able to make right decisions. Well, regardless of what else this new year may hold, I am confident that time in the Word of God and participation in biblical community will reap positive results in your life. If you look at the listening guide that is in your bulletin, you will see that I have titled this message as Trials. Have you ever thought about the difference between trials 
and temptations? I believe the goal of temptations is to bring failure. However, the purpose of a trial is to reveal strength. And in these two trials, Peter fails, but Christ demonstrates a strong resolve. Have you ever watched a movie or a game after you knew the outcome? Once you've seen one Hallmark movie, all the rest of them seem to fit in that category. You already know how it's going to turn out, even from the very first characters. However, it's interesting to read that portrayal of the plot. And remember that as Luke records the history that is known as the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he writes after the ascension about events that happened before the crucifixion. So as Peter denies... Luke already knows he will be restored and he will preach on Pentecost and thousands will be saved. As the Sanhedrin claims Jesus to be blasphemous, Luke already knows that the resurrection will prove that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. But we're going to look at the plot anyhow, even though we know the final score. And the lesson is that neither of these judgments are terminal. There will be a final and a permanent judgment. But let's look first at the trial that Luke describes, beginning here in verse 54. It's what I have called the um, court of peers. And in the court of peers then um, an attempt is made for Peter to hide in the shadows. In the second part of the 54th verse, going through 57, we see um, Peter trying to be incognito. For Jesus is there, but he is here. Mark chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 26 give additional details to this scene. And in those gospels, Peter claims, Even if all others abandon you, Jesus, I will not. And while Peter may be fulfilling the letter of that promise, he's the only one there, his spirit is revealed in the darkness, in the distance. He had promised Jesus, I'll never leave you. But in practical, he's still hiding in the darkness and the shadows over by the fire. In other words, he says, I'm with Jesus, but I'm not close enough that people can accuse me of being with Jesus. And I think there are a lot of us that our Christianity is that way. Yeah, I'm one of his, but I'm not close enough that anyone's going to accuse me of being some kind of a Jesus freak. You know, I, I, I know Jesus, I'm with him, I'm on his side, but let's not get crazy about it. And that's Peter hiding in the darkness and in the distance. You know, as I looked at here in Luke chapter 22, we actually see they, and so we have to go back to verses 52 and 53, and we see you. The you 
in 52 and 53 is the same plural group of people as they in 54 and 55. The people who are building the fire are the very mob that had arrested Jesus. Now, while the priest and the Pharisees went into the council, into Caiaphas' house, the rest of the mob is still standing close by. And the they that built the fire is this mob who has just arrested Jesus. This is the mob where Peter finds himself Seated. Now, many of us are familiar with the warning in Psalm 1. In the first Psalm, we are told that bad things happen when we cozy up with those who are apart from Christ. The very first verse of that Psalm says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See, when Peter sat down by the fire, the loss was already in the books. It now simply becomes a sad story of how bad will his denials become. And some of you have already made the decision to sit with the sinners. It's just a matter of how bad will our denial become. And the first uh, interaction that Peter has with the mob that is around him, the first is with a servant girl. And as he sits there, that servant girl, when, when Peter responds to her, he highlights that she was a female, meaning that she had no standing in society. She had no right to make any accusations as a servant as a girl against the man Peter and so he simply dismisses her accusation because she cannot make a substantial judgment the problem is is even if Peter wants to dismiss her because she's a girl and because she's a servant is that the next verse tells us that the allegation first there was the accusation and now we have the allegation that is confirmed by another the second interaction is elevated it's no longer a servant it's no longer a girl but when peter responds this is now a man see this complaint cannot be dismissed as easily because personhood is established and a person has standing to express a concern so if you wanted to, uh, you know, she, she doesn't really count. The second accusation, it counts. And Peter cannot ignore it. So first, here was his attempt. And then we have the allegation. And then we have an accusation that is supported by evidence. Because now a second person agrees with the previous complaint. He even offers uh, evidence. You're a Galilean. It's like if a person from Georgia goes to New York City, everybody knows he's from Georgia. If a person from Texas goes to Maine, everybody knows he's from Texas. And the same thing happens when a Galilean goes to Jerusalem. The the mannerisms and the inflection in his voice simply says, yeah, you're from Galilee. You, You were one of Jesus's. 
See, when one person criticizes you, apparently Peter just considered the source and dismissed it. But when three people criticize you of the same thing, and they explain their reasoning behind the criticism, it becomes difficult to continue as if nothing was said. But before the mob has an opportunity to act on this testimony, the end of verse 60, immediately the reason that Luke includes this story is revealed. See, the whole purpose of these three denials is revealed because a prophecy, a prophesied arraignment, is fulfilled. See, Jesus has already said, you will deny me before the rooster crows. And that denial exactly happened as Jesus prophesied. According to verse 61, 62, Jesus doesn't even have to say a word. Luke twenty-two thirty-four had already made the outcome perfectly clear. Back in verse 34, Jesus says, you're going to deny me. And Jesus looks at him. Doesn't have to say a word, but Peter could no longer blame the accusers. But, 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 it was, he was dead to rights. With the piercing glance of the Lord Jesus, Peter's mouth had written a check that his devotion and his obedience could not cover. And he had failed the trial. You know, it's amazing to me when I reflect upon the amazing love of Jesus. It becomes even more comprehensible, incomprehensible, when one considers that Jesus offered the bread and the wine to Judas and to Peter before predicting Judas' betrayal in verse 21 and his denial in verse 34. Jesus knew that they would betray and deny, yet he loved completely as he extended the bread and the wine. But Judas and Peter had very responses, very different responses to their failures. As a matter of fact, I, I even see that Peter and Judas both became sad. They both became sorrowful. But sadness in itself does not merit forgiveness. Judas' sadness led to despair. But Peter's sadness led to repentance. But Peter's repentance was not immediately. In John chapter 21, an exchange is recorded that appears between Luke 22, verse 43, and Luke 22, verse 44. Between those two verses is a story that we read in John chapter 21. And in that story, Jesus forgives and he restores Peter. And while Luke does not record that specific event of Peter's restoration, Luke's second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, portrays Peter as the hero. For the first 12 chapters, until Paul slips into the lead character role. 
Luke's platforming of Peter in Acts 2 through 12 becomes even more pronounced in the shadow of this character failure in today's text. Remember, Luke tells a whole story, both of failure and restoration, which ought to provide hope for us today. Because your best days in the kingdom effectiveness might still be in front of you. In spite of your past or current failures. Even if you have been lukewarm. You can get warmed up or you can get chilled. Even if you've been ineffective, you can become hot. You can become cold. You can become useful. I'm convinced that even though Peter failed, Luke includes his restoration as the new hero in the first part of the book of Acts. And even if you have been lukewarm in the past, your best days for ministry may yet be in front of us. And I believe this next section of verses overlaps Peter's event. You notice in verse 60... The rooster crows. In verse 66, we read, When day came. So I believe 60 and 66 happened at the same time. Therefore, verses 63 through 65 are happening at the very same time as verses 55 through 59. In other words, at the moment Peter said, No, I don't know him. I'm not one of his. I I have nothing to do with him. At that very same moment, Jesus is being mocked. He is being abused. He is being beaten. He is being blasphemed. And then the cock crows. Eye contact is made. And Peter realizes the sadness and the sorrow leading him to repentance. I think it might be helpful for us now to move from the courtyard of Peter's denials and to move into the events within the house. As a matter of fact, I think we find that Jesus is forced into a puppet court in verses 63 through 71. And in this puppet court, Jesus has to intervene with people who have a perceived authority. This perceived authority is first hinted at back in chapter in verse 54, at the beginning of the story, where they seized him and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. See, by the time Caiaphas is a high priest, the priesthood had evolved into something it was never intended. God gave judges and prophets and kings to settle disputes. He never said the job of a priest is to settle disputes. You may recall that when the promised land was divided, there was no section of land deeded to the Levites. The tribe of Levi did not get a portion of the land. However, the Levites were permitted to lodge in the cities of refuge between their time of service in the tabernacle and later at the temple. 
They, did, they weren't supposed to have property of their own, but they were provided for that they could reside within the cities of refuge until their time of service was necessary. Now, I may be reading into what is actually here, but when I see the high priest with a house large enough to host the events of verses 63 through 65, it suggests to me that the Sanhedrin was now fleecing the people more than serving the people. If the priests were supposed to have uh, accommodations but not own property, and now the high priest owns property to the extent that this large meeting can happen, I think the priesthood had become something that it was never intended. News exposés today like to reveal the lavish homes of politicians and preachers and also of celebrities, but they have no problem with celebrities having nice homes because they've earned it. But they like to expose the preachers and the politicians who live in lavish surroundings because, after all, preachers and politicians are supposed to serve the people, not get rich off of the people. And while their accumulation may be totally illegal, there's a sense when we see this lavish palace for a preacher or a televangelist, there's a sense that something isn't quite right. And that's the impression that I get when I read these verses. The fact that Caiaphas is living in a big fancy house, big enough to accommodate Jesus being bound and beaten, tells me that Caiaphas' priesthood is not what God ever intended. But even though they perceived to have authority and they portrayed themselves as having authority, we actually see in verses 63 through 65 that Jesus is enduring a nighttime full of abuse. Notice that this mocking, this beating, and this blaspheming in verses 63, 64, and 65 happens before the trial even meets. It's not until 66, when the day breaks, that the Sanhedrin gathers together and they hold the council to judge. But we've already had three verses of Jesus being mistreated before the council even meets. Now, verse 64, just as a bonus for you, has a connection to Isaiah 11, verse 3. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, a prophecy is made that when Messiah comes, he will be able to make judgments without even seeing what is actually happening. The prophecy says this, And his delight, Messiah, shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ear hears. And so the prophecy is that Messiah would be able to make judgments even if he couldn't see. And so these folks said, fine, let's blindfold him, let's beat him, and let him, t- and let him tell us who threw the first punch. And so it is rooted in a prophecy of Messiah. But after this nighttime of abuse, we also move forward and we see that there is a daytime accusation. And in the daytime, the accusations appear in the form of two questions. The first question is, are you the Christ? 
And the second question is, are you the Son of God? And Jesus does not give an explicit yes or no to those two questions. But the council is satisfied that Jesus' words in reply equal a yes. He doesn't say no. He says, you've said it. And they interpret that to be equal to a yes, that he was the Christ, the Son of God. You know, there are some cults today that like to claim that Jesus never specifically claimed to be uniquely divine. Some cults simply, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jehovah is God and Jesus never claimed to be equal to Jehovah. Some Mormons believe that Jesus became a God just as we become a God. Therefore, Jesus' divinity was not unique to him. And so the cults try to tell us that Jesus never specifically claimed, I am God. Well, he did say he who has seen the Father, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And he answers it here in such a way that his answer is is sufficiently clear that those who want to get rid of him believe that what he is saying is from the prophecy of Psalm 110. See, Jesus has already used Psalm 110 to get under the skin of the Sadducees. When he says that David says to my Lord, and so the question is, how can my Lord be my Lord? And and so Jesus has already appealed to Psalm 110, so the people are aware of it. And the second part of Psalm 110, verse 1, goes on to say, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now we look at Luke 22. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Seems pretty clear to me that Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. And if they determined that he was claiming to be God, and Jesus never took opportunity over the next two days to clarify a misunderstanding as he moved towards certain execution, I think we can take confidence in what he meant. Yes, Jesus was the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And I propose to you this morning that the same conclusion as the council. For the council looked at Jesus and then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. And I propose to you that in this room today, we come to the same conclusion. We have all the evidence we need to decide that Jesus is Lord and we can place our trust in Him for salvation. We don't need to be like Peter that denies that we know Jesus. We acknowledge His Lordship and we surrender to His Lordship and we taste of His salvation. We have all the evidence that we need. I also believe that we have all the evidence needed to submit to His Lordship, to trust Him to protect us. 
That's the problem that Peter had. He says, you know, I, I, I know Jesus, but I can't trust him to take care of me, so I'm just going to tell this little lie. Abraham had the same problem. He believed in the God of the Bible, but he didn't trust the God of the Bible to take care of his needs, and so he told a little lie. And sometimes we tell the little lie because we don't trust that he is sufficient to care for us and to protect us. But I say, what further testimony do we need? We do have enough evidence. You know, Peter's decisions in this moment reveal a lack of faith. The Sanhedrin's decisions in this scene reveal their lack of fear, the fear of God. But both of these responses elevate self and degrade Christ. Peter's fear of men, even a, a servant girl, denied him an opportunity to see God's faithfulness to protect and to provide for a disciple. And the Sanhedrin's denial of Christ's authority denied them the opportunity to taste the salvation of God. My prayer for us is that we would proudly wear the name of, Christ, of Christian. That we would share his love and we would proclaim his gospel. Now we started this service by singing, I can't tell why. But I'd like to conclude this service with singing, but I'll tell the world. I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. My prayer is that we would proudly wear the name of Christian. And our final song is a declaration. And it is a testimony. Because if you can't say it in here, you won't say it out there. But saying it in here gives us a practice for telling the world that I'm a Christian. Stand with me.